Well, good morning again, Missio Church. Uh, My name is Levi Pancake. For those of you that don't know me, I serve as one of the elders on staff here. And we're continuing uh, to look at the letter of 1 John. Uh, We're in a series called Confidence, Letters of John. And today, we have three verses. That's it, found in 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So if you would uh, turn there, uh, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, we thank You for this time together. We pray now as we consider Your truth that You would incline our hearts, open our eyes, give us understanding, and please satisfy us with Your Word and with Your promises. We entrust this time to You now, Lord. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So, love and hate often go uh, together. I love the Steelers, hate the Ravens. Love health, hate germs. Love peace, hate war. Love snow, hate summer, maybe. We can dream it a bit in February. Uh, love ketchup, hate tomatoes. All right, that one doesn't really work as much because they're kind of the same thing, but it is true for me. I love ketchup and pizza and all that stuff, but uh, I just, the thought of biting into a tomato just disgusts me to no end. They they often go together because um, it's almost impossible to love one thing and its complete opposite or its counterpart at the same time. And, and that's what John is getting at when he's contrasting uh, a love for the world and a love for God. They're, they're, they're counterparts. They're, they're mutually exclusive. He says that we are to love God and not the world. We as followers of Christ are to love God and not the world. It's the first thing he says in our three verses, in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's an imperative. It's a command. It's the main point of these three verses. And everything else uh, through the rest of verse 15, 16, and 17 uh, are reasons why or incentives why we as followers of Christ are not to love the world. Now, two words we need to define to make sure that we have clarity on this idea of not loving the world, but rather loving God. First, we need to define the world as John intends it in this passage, and then we should define love. First, the word world. Now, uh, sometimes 
you will see John use in the gospel or in his letters. He'll use the word world, and it means like the universe, or it means um, life on earth. Think John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So it can be used in a positive sense, and it can also be used in a, in a fairly negative sense. As uh, one commentator named Dodd says that um, world here in our text means the life of human society as organized under the power of evil, or it's something that is organized under the dominion of Satan. Think evil. Think antichrist. Think against God. I mean, it's something that's organized under the dominion of Satan. It's Satan's realm, so to speak. It's, it's the world is what John is saying here. It's, it's a negative term. And then secondly, the word love. Now, that word is thrown out there all the time, and it's completely watered down and oftentimes can be meaningless. I love pizza. I love tennis. I love my job. I love my wife and kids. I love a good cup of English breakfast tea in the morning. I love all those things, and yet, as you can tell, I mean, depending on what the object of the love is, it, the term love can mean something different, can carry different weight. But just boiled down to its essence, I think David Allen helps clarify this when he says, love is, in essence, two things. It's a desire for something and a commitment to something. Desire and commitment. That's love. Just a silly example to help drive this point home. So I mentioned earlier, I love tennis. Now, it's a love that has grown over time. When I was in college at Florida Gulf Coast University, you know, suffering for Jesus down there in the sunshine and all of that, uh, me and my college friends, basically we're going to Club Med University right on this lake. There are all these tennis courts, and uh, I just, we started playing a lot, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so I, I started watching a little more tennis, and this is the end of like Agassiz's time and Sampras's time and Federer's now rising on the scene, and I just, I just went all in. I mean, I, I love tennis now. I love the four majors. You got the Australian Open, which starts tonight, by the way. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but the Australian Open starts tonight. Isn't that exciting? I love the French Open and the red clay. Wimbledon with the white outfits contrasted with the green grass. It's just beautiful. Uh, even the U.S. Open where usually Serena Williams is yelling at someone at that tennis tournament. And I don't just love the majors. I mean, I love like the smaller tournaments as, as well. I love the Miami Open. I love the Western and Southern Open. I love the BNP Paribas Open. You don't even know where that is, do you? I love all of that. And, and so, I mean, I'm watching the Tennis Channel all the time. It's usually on in the background. The Australian Open this week, Melbourne, Australia, 16 hours ahead. So uh, I say it starts tonight. It's really tomorrow in Australia. And um, when it's on, like a really good match, like sometimes they start at 3.30, 4 a.m. And it's not going to be odd where in two weeks when like the quarterfinals and semifinals is on, I'll probably wake up, depending on what the matchup is, at 4 or 4.30 to turn that match on and just catch a glimpse and watch it live. Now, you hear that and you think, I am nuts. And I can understand that. I don't think most of you like tennis. I know Rick and Michelle St. James like tennis, but that's a gentleman and a lady right there. <laughs> but I desire to watch tennis and... I'm committed to it. I'll wake up at 4.30 in the morning. 
next week to watch some of the matches. Now, it's, it's true for whatever you love. Name a sport. Fishing. Some of you do some weird things to go on some, like, fishing expeditions. Hunting. Golf. Uh, football, maybe it's a particular show on Netflix or a movie series. Think Star Wars nerds or Marvel nerds. Um, it could be your spouse. It could be your kids or, or anything else for that matter. Love requires a desire and a commitment. And, of course, we know this, but love is more than an emotional response It's as John Stott says, it's a steady devotion of the will. And John is saying, when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, that our, in a primary sense, in an ultimate sense, in a first things first sense, that our love, our steady devotion, in a first things first sense, needs to be and ought to be to the Lord. Now, apparently, some in this context, they were or are guilty of loving the world and its system. Some Christians were getting a little too cozy to the world system. Some were compromising with the world. Some were giving too much ground to the world's way of thinking and the world's way of acting. And the things of the world to this early church were looking more and more and more glamorous and appealing. And John is warning this young church to not take their eyes their devotion off the Lord and turn it to the things of the world. Well, now the rest of our passage is going to give some more reasons why we shouldn't love the world. We shouldn't be drawn in or caught up in the dominion of Satan and the world system. It's going to give two reasons. One, it's going to say that loving the world is incompatible with loving God. And then the second reason he's going to give in verse 17 is because the world is passing away, but the Lord and the things of the Lord abide forever. First, loving the world and loving God, John says, are incompatible. Look at the second part of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's saying, it's right out of the gate, one of the reasons why you shouldn't love the world and God at the same time is because love for the world pushes out love for God, and vice versa. Love for God can push out love for the world. That love for the world, love for God, that steady devotion of the will, mutually exclusive. You can't love both in an ultimate sense or in a primary sense at the same time. Love for God, love for the world are incompatible. He says if you love the world, that may be an indication that the love of the Father is not in you. James 4.4 makes a similar point, just expresses in a different way. Friendship with the world is Hatred towards God. 
Matthew 6, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Saying that if, if your love, your greatest desire, your steady devotion is to the world, that that may be an indication that categorically you are with the God-haters. Whether you want to say that you are or not, whether you explicitly think that you are or not, that is an indication that you are of the world. And if you're of the world, you're not of the Father. Now, he's going to explain further then in a, almost in a diagnostic sense, what more does love of the world look like? He answers that in verse 16. For all that is in the world, and then he's going to give three phrases, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Let's take each of those in turn. Desires of the flesh. The NIV translates this as the cravings of sinful man. Emphasis on that word cravings. Um, it's a, uh, the desires of the flesh are often described by commentators as these, these animalistic cravings. John Piper calls this phrase the, uh, the lust of the gutter. Uh, now, uh, people will try to make a distinction between the desires of the flesh, that first phrase, and the desires of the eyes, a second phrase. Some, some say that John's just really getting after the same thing, just explaining it in different ways. But you know, for the sake of this, uh, our time together, I'm going to distinguish the two. And the desires of the flesh, think those base desires. Think, uh, if you're going through the Missio reading plan right now, we're reading Genesis. I think it was Genesis 40 or 41 this morning. But all the, the sin that you see in the book of Genesis, all that nasty stuff, there's kids in the room and I'm just not going like, to explicitly name it, but you know what I'm talking about? Like that's the desires of the flesh. Those animalistic cravings. It's um, you see something or you see someone and you're going to take it or you're going to take him or her. She's married, doesn't matter. I want her, I'm going to take her. I like that car, I'm going to steal it. Or I'm going to hurt someone to get it. I like that job, I'm going to hurt others to get it. I want that money, I'm going to do whatever I can. Doesn't matter if it's unethical, immoral, illegal. I'm going to go after it, no matter what. It's giving in to those base desires. Now, as a civilized people, we say, well, that one, I'm, I may not give in to all of that all the time, or it's very rare, or I haven't done it in a long time, or maybe you, you haven't. But then the second phrase, what John Piper calls, this is the uh, desires of the eyes. John Piper calls this the lust of the gourmet. Uh, these are the desires that maybe in a civilized society are a little um, more approved, but are no less dangerous. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes. In a word, desires of the eyes is covetousness. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. 
Aldous Huxley, in his well-known book, A Brave New World, uh, talks about um, the eyes of man, and, and he says that man has an almost infinite appetite for distraction. Tony Ranke, uh, in his book uh, called Spectacle, he says, we are creatures shaped by what grabs our attention. We become like what we watch. It's, it's having your eyes look at something, being so preoccupied with something, being so fixated on something or a series of some things that that becomes the thing or things that you live for. That becomes your functional idol. It's when the eyes are focused somewhere other than God. In a materialistic sense, it's newer, bigger, nicer, shinier, better. It generally focuses on what you don't currently have. Of course, the easy example, it could be the nicer, newer house, the bigger house. It could be that remodel in your home. It could be that new car. It could be the new technology. It could be the new iPhone. It could be that vacation spot. Uh, It could be an obsession with that promotion, getting into that school, getting that job, or just moving out of the state of New York, because apparently everyone in New York wants to live in Florida these days. Not that those things are necessarily wrong, but we become, when that becomes the focus, when that becomes the preoccupation, when that becomes the thing that you dwell on, that occupies your heart, your mind, your attention, your energy, your efforts, your conversation, those are indications that you are giving yourself over to the desires of the eyes. Rather than what Paul encourages Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain, rather than enjoying, praising God, thanking Him for the blessings in your life, and rejoicing in them, in Him and giving them to you, you focus on what might be, or what you don't have yet, or what you want leading to a spirit of discontentment, ingratitude, ungratefulness, frustration, grumbling, complaining, moaning, or simply put, taking your eyes off the Lord. Oftentimes, you're comparing yourself with others and what others have and what you don't have. John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The last one, pride of life. Uh, Where the others may focus on what you don't have, pride of life focuses on what you do have, which then leads to boasting, whether it's relationships, power, status, or possessions. It's still a form of worship of things, stuff, and other people, things other than God. But, but rather than um, the effort to try to get it, now you're um, 
expending so much time, energy, and effort to keep it or to keep it shiny, new, upgraded, and working properly. It's a wicked pride in our possessions and sense of accomplishment and satisfaction, still comparing ourselves to others, but rather than focusing on what you don't have, you actually think that you're better than the other person or that you got more than the other person or that you're better off than the other person, and it swells your chest up with boasting. Uh, it's, it's such an unhealthy preoccupation with the self. And that's really what the fixation is. It's like your life is a, a, a living, walking selfie. You, you've seen it before at the mall or an amusement park or something, you know, maybe probably before COVID, but usually a teenager. Uh, but sometimes, you know, 40, 50-year-old people as well, where they've got that, that phone and they're, they're trying to take that selfie, you know, and, the, and you see it. And it's just a, it's a spectacle is what it is. But they take it and then they look. And they don't like it. And then they, they try that and then they look. And then they try to get that angle and that. And it's like 27 times and you're just watching the whole thing. Like you don't know how ridiculous you look. And then after they do all that, they got the filters and all that. I mean, it's me, 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 I, I, I. That is the pride of life. You have an unhealthy preoccupation with you. It's like one of those mirrors, if you've ever, like, I was at Men's Warehouse a couple years ago getting fitted, fitted for a tuxedo, and you, it's like goes around like this, and if you look into, you just see yourself everywhere, and if you look into the mirror, it's like your image and every side of you, which for me at least at 18, I would have enjoyed that image much more than now that I'm 36, but there's so, all these sides of you, and it just goes on for infinity. I mean, that's the pride of life, and John says that that is not of the Father. Anything in this world that is not God, including yourself, can rob your heart of a love for God. Anything that is not God can draw your heart away from God. If you don't have it, it can fill you with a passion to get it. If you get it, it can fill you with pride that you've got it. And now you have to keep it. But against this pride of life, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is a charge for God's people to take our eyes off of Everything going on around us, all the, all the stuff that's happening, all the headlines, all the things that we can fill our lives with, all the distractions, and to redirect that gaze unto the Lord. Why? Because He is the only one who can infinitely and eternally satisfy. John says, we should not love the world because, one, if we truly love the world, we truly desire it, live for it, and are committed to it over and above God, then you can't love God at the same time. And then the second reason we see in our last verse, verse 17, you shouldn't love the world because the world is impermanent. It's passing away while God is forever or God is permanent. Look at verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Pretty straightforward verse. All that we can fill our lives with, all that, that can distract us, that is passing away. I mean, it's, the, the world's appearance of permanence is deceptive. It's not a, a cycle that's repeating itself. It is moving towards a, a God-ordained conclusion. And this is a warning to us to not to be so preoccupied or fixated on all the things around us because its destiny is to be passed away. It's not permanent. I was thinking about this. I read a story a couple months ago uh, about a guy named Nathan uh, Apodaca and just a real rags to riches story, if there ever was one you know, in our um, socially, social media-driven age. And uh, back in October, uh, Nathan Apodaca, he's, he's driving to work, and he works at a potato factory in Idaho, and uh, his truck breaks down. This truck has 320,000 miles on it. But he's not going to be put off by that. So when his truck breaks down, uh, rather than waiting for a jump or a mechanic or something to come to fix it, uh, he takes out his longboard in the back of his pickup truck, grabs a big bottle of ocean spray cranberry juice, and starts longboarding to the potato factory. And I don't know how long the, the ride was, but as he's doing that, I guess he's got some time to kill, looking to do something fun. So he makes a TikTok video. And the TikTok video is pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. I mean, uh, it's just, he's chill as chill can be. He's riding on this longboard. It looks like it's maybe a, a four-lane road or something like that. And uh, in the background, because it's a TikTok video, uh, is the song Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. And so he's riding this longboard to this song, and he's chill, and he takes a a chug from the jug of the cranberry juice, and then he lip syncs like the last few lines of the song. The whole video lasts, I don't know, 15 seconds. Like I said, it's, it's kind of entertaining. He gets to work. He decides to upload it on TikTok and then goes in the potato factory. Within an hour, 100,000 views. By the end of his shift, hundreds of thousands of views. It's insane. By the end of the week, uh, it's in the millions. I mean, it has just completely gone viral. And it didn't just impact his life. Fleetwood Mac, I mean, this band that's been around from the 70s, because of this TikTok video, they were number one, that song Dreams, number one on the iTunes chart. They had their best week of streaming ever because of this video. Uh, Ocean Spray, their sales, best in, I can't remember what it is now, uh, best in years, I'll just put it that way because of this TikTok video. Ocean Spray, as a gesture of gratitude to Mr. Apodaca, they buy him a new truck. And in the back of the truck, it's filled with Ocean Spray cranberry juice, as you could imagine. Nathan Apodaca takes a uh, sabbatical, I don't know, leave of absence from the potato factory, hires a publicist, and then next month, moves out of his RV and pays cash, $320,000 for a brand new house. I mean, like, uh, this is like the epitome of our culture. Like, people will work 40 years and never save up $320,000 to buy a house cash. But this is the day and age that we, we live in. And it's a kind of neat story. And, you know, the video, like, I see some of you want to look at your phones. Check it out now. Like, just, just Google it. You'll, you'll find it. Um, it's one of the most viral videos of 2020. But 
you think there's just 15 second video, 15 minutes of fame, and, and it's nice that he has a truck, and it's nice that he has a car, but then you read verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2, and the world, and all that is in the world is passing away. Like, nobody's going to remember this guy six months from now, six years from now, unless he can keep churning out viral videos, because the next viral video will come, and all of our attention will go on to something else. It's called 15 minutes of fame for a reason. I mean, even his brand new truck, which I'm happy for him, that's great, but even his brand new truck in 10, 12, 15 years is not going to be as nice as it is today because the world is passing away along with its desires. Uh, How do I know that? Because in 2001, when I drove my first car, it was a 1988 Mercury Cougar. In 1988, two-tone car, someone drove that car off the lot and they were pretty stylish. They thought they were pretty awesome. I'm driving it to high school in 2001. I don't feel any of those feelings. It has 227,000 miles on it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no babe magnet in 2001. I can tell you that. These things, are the stuff, I mean, all of it. As Jesus says, still, Matthew chapter 6, but do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I mean, the end of all of our stuff, it's, it's either going to rust, Jesus says, where moth and rust destroy, someone's going to steal it, a, a wild raccoon's going to get it, or a skunk's going to spray it, or something's going to happen to it. And yet we still act shocked when the furnace breaks, or when the TV breaks, or when the roof needs to be repaired. Like, how can this happen? But that's the nature of things in a fallen world. John is saying, all of this that we can get preoccupied with, all of this that we, we fill our thoughts with, fill our energy with, that, that just consumes us, is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, this isn't teaching works righteousness, like if you just do good, then you'll abide forever. This is Another way of saying, he who has trusted in Christ, who has placed his faith in Jesus, turns to the Lord, and then as they've been given a new heart, they will then live that out. As Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. This is what John is getting at. He's saying, don't don't be caught up in all that is going on around you. The next election will be the biggest election we've ever seen. How do I know that? Because the last election was the biggest election we've ever seen, and the election before that. I mean, all of these things that can preoccupy our thoughts and our time and our energy and efforts. And John is exhorting these believers and us to say, no, no, no. Fix your gaze on the Lord. He and He alone is the only one who can infinitely and eternally satisfy. And there's nothing wrong with, I think, TikTok videos or a new truck or a new house, but we don't live for those things in an ultimate sense. We enjoy those things, we thank the Lord when we get them, and we use them for God's glory and to serve others. We hold them open-handedly. And so this morning, 
I think this is a good diagnostic for us that we should be asking ourselves, what do you love? What do you trust in? Who or what do you live for? If someone could look at all that brain energy, all that time that you spend, all the money you spend, if they just took inventory of all of that, what would they say consumes the steady devotion of your will? I pray that we, as Christ's people, would be a people marked by love, affection, and devotion to God, using these things that He's entrusted to us for His glory, that we would be marked by generosity, that we'd be marked as a people who are not shaken by what comes and goes on around us, and that we would be called people who have the Father, the love of the Father in them, and that we would be a people who do the will of God and abide forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage this morning, a challenging passage as a kind of probes, I think some of those dark corners of our hearts. John Calvin says that our hearts are like idle factories. Each and every one of us has stuff that we can confess with this. And that we would be quick to confess it. And then turn to you, rejoicing in these blessings, rejoicing in what you've created, but not living for it in an ultimate sense. Help us not to be caught up with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And help us to be people marked by love, affection, commitment, devotion, and desire for you, Lord. We love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. So this morning, after a little bit of a hiatus, we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And so let me uh, set this up first, and then I'll kind of give you the the COVID rules. Uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter 14, he's with his disciples, and as they were eating, this is Mark 14, 22, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We take the Lord's Supper, it's not salvific, it doesn't save us. Uh, This is a table reserved for those of us who are the recipients of God's grace, who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and have publicly identified with Christ.